Welcome to Nutritank's podcast. When you tune in, you're going to listen to a fantastic array of speakers speaking about things in the following fields such as food, farming, nutrition, lifestyle medicine and other areas of health. We can't wait to have you with us on this journey. Millennials, coddled entitled, narcissistic, work shy and bloody lazy. We want to redeem millennials and give ourselves a good reputation. We have poured endless passions and hard work into Nutritank and this podcast. We hope you learn and enjoy. If you enjoyed today's episode on the podcast, then please subscribe to the rest of the podcast. Share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Give the podcast a five-star rating and leave a kind review. It will really help with Nutritank's mission to be the leading hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine. I'm Ali Jaffe, your host. I hope all of you managed to catch part one of the Medical Students in Nutrition Research episode. And so on to part two today, we have got another wonderful cohort of students. And once again, I'm just absolutely thrilled to promote the work of millennials within the health space. First up, we've got Zoe Rubens. Zoe is a medical student at the University of Sheffield and in her second year, uh, when medical students are required to do a six-week research attachment, Zoe decided to conduct her research into whether nutrition knowledge improved over the course of study at Sheffield Medical School. Zoe and her team built questionnaires used to assess knowledge for first, third and fifth years of medical students and then these were compared. This was piloted on a small group of students focusing on competence, confidence and attitude towards nutrition education. So now on to a really exciting initiative called An Apple A Day. An Apple A Day is set up by Brighton and Sussex medical students. It's an interactive discussion based community initiative and the aim of it is to enhance knowledge and health behaviours in adolescents in deprived areas of Brighton and Hove. The programme provides students with opportunities to improve their understanding of nutrition and well-being whilst learning practical skills. It also gives the medical students at the Apple A Day mentors the opportunity to develop leadership and teaching skills. The programme takes on the form of six weekly hour-long sessions delivered to Year 7 students at school and its focus is based on the interactive learning and small group discussions that they hold. So, for instance, the sessions cover what it means to be healthy, the basics of nutrition and a balanced diet, and positive health behaviours. The final session takes place in a kitchen, consolidating the knowledge the children have learned. Medical students Megan, Joe and Harriet took over the programme two years ago and are passionate about delivering sessions and conducting research into the programme in order to evaluate the impact and effectiveness so it can be done on a larger, on a larger scale. Megan is currently a fourth year medical student at Brighton and as part of this research project she conducted online questionnaires before and after the programme in order to evaluate the effectiveness and find out what could be improved. Then we have Jo and Joe's currently interpolating at Imperial College and he's doing management. Next year he'll be conducting an individual research project into an apple a day. And then we're on to Robin. 
and Robin is currently integrating at Southampton in public health, doing a master's in fact. And last year Robin conducted a qualitative study into year seven, year seven children's concerns, attitudes and experiences of taking ownership over their own healthy lifestyles. Finding from the study aimed to offer constructive feedback for the Apple a Day programme and add to the general literature basis. I'm so thrilled to showcase the brilliant work of millennials. So let's begin. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And so I want to hear a little bit more about your research. I've obviously introduced it, but tell me in your own words um, why you decided you wanted to do research in this field and why you're interested in nutrition. And so we had a choice of lots of different projects and lifestyle medicine and holistic medicine is something that I'm really interested in and is probably my main motivation to become a doctor. So I wanted to choose something where I could explore this interest. And um, the project, so we could choose from titles, and this project was about um, medical students' perceptions of um, education at Sheffield um, focused on nutrition. And I have found that when I started the course, Sheffield has a really patient-focused course, but we didn't really have anything about lifestyle counselling or any kind of proper nutrition education that wasn't like science-based and calculations-based. So I just felt really motivated to look into this and to see what the situation was across the course, not just in my year, and this gave the opportunity to do that. Wow, no, that sounds like a brilliant opportunity. And so... Tell me, was this title one that already existed or did you make it up or wasn't that clear on it? Um, so it was offered by the research lead who worked in the um, metabolic medicine department and he had proposed the title of looking into nutrition education in Sheffield. But then we found out when we started the project that it was open to our own kind of interpretation. So he suggested the topic and then we steered it where we kind of wanted it to go, I think. Brilliant. Um, it's so, it's honestly so enlightening to hear that the title actually came from um, someone with the authoritative voice within the faculty because obviously, you know, in the first part of this podcast, I was talking with students who have done nutrition education projects, interviewing the faculty. And um, one of the students said, you know, she was met with a lot of resistance. She was doing a a nutrition education project intercalation actually at Leeds and she had more against it than for it so it's really encouraging to hear that this title was actually proposed by you know a faculty member so is yeah. that is that something is that do you feel like there's waves being made in Sheffield what do you think the general kind of energy is around uh, nutrition I think within this research team there was definitely and enthusiasm to get changes put in the curriculum but I don't think this lines up to the central mm. faculty. I think people want to make changes but the curriculum is so overcrowded already that I think it, we're at the start of raising conversations and talking to students but I think this project and similar projects need to be like they need to be progressed and get more conversations going because I think the resistance is met at the end when they say there's nowhere to put it in the curriculum mm. and these kind of things on placement. But I think conversations are starting, but I think a lot more need to be had. But definitely the research team was very enthusiastic about it. Sure. And tell me, did you have any sceptical medical student friends, colleagues who were just a bit 
confused as to why you were giving your time to such a project around nutrition? Did you have support from your peers or were some just like, oh, I don't know why nutrition is important in medicine? I think a bit of both. Like maybe my close circle of friends are all quite similar to me, interested in lifestyle medicine. We all love cooking and eating and that kind of stuff. So we see the importance and lifestyle and talking to patients correctly about lifestyle is important and a motivation for some of my friends. But then for others, people who are more like lab focused, science focused, I think they don't really understand the need in practice, especially because I'm in, I'm only in second year. So I think we haven't had that many experiences when you come into lifestyle conversations with patients. So I think, I think the earlier years kind of felt they didn't see the relevance, but all the later years that we spoke to were definitely in agreement that um, nutrition counselling help it needs like it needs attention in the curriculum. And it's so fascinating you say that. It's almost like I've forced you to say it because that's exactly what was said in um, you know the first part of this podcast. Uh, the students were telling me that it's really hard to get the preclinical years on board with the topic of nutrition and lifestyle medicine because if you just deliver it to them in a lecture, it doesn't mean anything because they've not seen it in practice. They're not, you know, enacting it in their con- uh, consultation skills and they're not clinically translating it to the patients in front of them. So they don't know what it means. It seems a bit airy-fairy. And, and it's also yeah. not so it doesn't come up in exams very much so people are motivated I think that's a major thing you see in Sheffield especially yeah and it's like the same with all medical students you know we're busy people it's a stressful degree there's so much to learn of course you're going to be like prioritizing what comes up in the exam it's you know it's no fault of the student it's the you know the issue with the system and we know that assessment drives learning so if we want it to be a priority for students it's got to be assessed we've got to have an OSPI station around delivering diet and lifestyle advice and um, we've got to have more um, MCQ questions around the evidence basis of nutrition so um yeah, there, there are a lot of things that need to be changed systemically, I think, for there to be this mindset change in the students. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So tell me, tell me about the findings you you came across in this project. I know it was quite a short one, but it's still, you know, a, a lot of time to um, have discovered things. And um, so we set out at the start to do kind of a review of the literature, find out what was already out there, and we were aiming to pick a questionnaire that we could just implement and kind of compare the years um, across the course in Sheffield. But we found that there wasn't one questionnaire that we could just use to test knowledge, to test the attitude and like self-perceived proficiency in um, nutrition because it just hadn't been done yet in an appropriate way. So instead of just implementing that, we um, we wrote our own one. So we did a proper like systematic review of what was already out there and selected it. And so by the time we'd done that, we only had time to um, sample it on a quite small group of students, but they were in um, first, second and fourth and fifth year. So we kind of had two comparisons rather than the three we were aiming for. Um, but we found that the nutrition knowledge did increase slightly over the years, but not as much as we would have hoped. And it tended to link the people who scored highly. When we did a short demographic survey, they had a personal interest in nutrition and health. So it didn't seem like the course had made the hugest difference. And then we found with the um, 
kind of like self-confidence in the area that people definitely the older years said they didn't feel confident and the younger years said they didn't really know because they hadn't come into contact with it and then overall the attitude was that everyone felt nutrition was quite important and they did feel like the curriculum was lacking um, but there wasn't really a strong view either way. People just felt quite confused by nutrition, I think, was the overall thing we found out. And why do you think people are confused around nutrition? Do you think that external factors like the media and um, things that people read about that are perhaps non-evidence-based confuse people? What do you think is going on? I think, I, I think diet and health and nutrition is a very personal thing. And I think it can feel difficult to tread and it's not as straightforward as you do this, you give a drug and then there's an outcome. So I think I think a lot of the media perception and there's so many different diets out there and we're not told at medical school this is what you should do and we're just told, you know, a healthy diet is needed but no one ever defines that. So I think you almost get your answers and then you don't. And I think it's, it's the eternal problem with nutrition that there isn't really a one-size-fits-all but I think we should address this in a different way rather than just giving half answers and I think because it's not very important in the curriculum when people come to try and use it in practice then they feel confused whether maybe they shouldn't even bother talking about it because it hasn't been taught so I, I just think it needs there's no real attention given to it so then people feel confused absolutely and, uh, yeah, so there's confusion there because, you know, there's a lack of training within um, medical education. And then there's obviously confusion in the general public because sometimes there aren't reliable um, and evidence-based sources that people are getting their nutrition from. And there's a lot of conflicting views. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a, there are muddy waters. But I think what we can learn is that assessment drives learning and at the end of the day there's a lot of evidence and research out now I've just been part of a research paper in BMJ prevention nutrition and health um, along with my co-founder in and um, professor Sumatra Ray and Elaine McKinnich who um, our other participants on this call know as she's the Brighton Sussex dietitian on the faculty and so that uh, paper was so important because it essentially showed that from our surveys which we collected uh, from medical students and junior doctors it showed that it wasn't due to a lack of time that they weren't able to discuss diet and lifestyle within consultations it was due to a lack of confidence and that kind of confusion of oh am I saying the right thing is this too vague is it even worth me bringing it up and that all comes from training so if the education is not there from the onset when you enter medical school then by the time you graduate and you um, are completely um, comfortable with all the skills you need to have in consultation skills it's all automatic and second nature you're not going to remember to mention something that you weren't properly taught about or if you do you might feel a bit awkward so it is complicated but it definitely comes from you know the authoritative uh, figures saying this is important and you know it trickling down from there but also so important to have students like yourself and um, you know there's a Nutritank branch at Sheffield I'm sure you know about it's so important to show the student demand and the need for the type of student um, teaching is wanted by the students themselves yeah for sure and so um, 
could you tell us a little bit more about any barriers you found um, within your uh, research project and how you would like to progress it if you had more time and resources? I think the main thing was the time and aspect. It was only a six-week project. Um, but I think the main thing we came into was that we couldn't find kind of like a curriculum or a set of core competencies to draw the questionnaire up against. So we didn't know what we should be testing and a really solid way of testing nutrition knowledge. So we, we found that we could have benefited from having conversations with more people in faculty who deal with the curriculum and what the outcomes for young doctors should be in surrounding nutrition, which I think might be a bit of a national problem, but something that we would have benefited from completely. Um, and I think being able to test it on more people and show that there was that big drive and need, because the project was so small, I think it's not the place where we could go to kind of people in the faculty at the medical school with it. Um, so I think overall I want it to be the questionnaire to be improved so it can be drawn out nationally and compare other medical schools so then we could see what the best approaches are for nutrition education at the moment from learning from other medical schools because Sheffield has a really great program with um, early years GP where you have the chance every other week to meet patients and chat to them but we're not taught how to talk to them so I think mm -hmm. if we could integrate within that time learning one week nutrition counselling and mm. another week kind of mental health or something like that there's definitely scope for it we just need to I think we need to see some other practice and bring it in so mm. I think expanding and then learning from others would be where I'd want to take this project and you know that's why I'm so grateful I've got you on the pod because I've got so many people you can work with who are doing similar work and well you know the more manpower the better because then we can make it more uh, sustainable and on a larger scale because uh, there's so many great pockets of practice in different medical schools with really passionate um, you know uh, faculty leads who want nutrition in but it's not you know it's not a standardized thing and it's very frustrating that obviously every medical school has um, you know different expertise different research interests and different um, uh, emphases on different uh, disciplines within the curriculum and it's not all standardized but you know if we have champions within the faculty like um, Brighton do with Elaine as a dietitian who is actually employed by the medical school then I really think that we can start to make a difference we have these uh, champions within the faculty who want to see this change because uh, they can try and make it happen so um, yeah I definitely think that there's more comparative studies happening and I wanted to hear your views on whether you think this would be useful because we're in conversations with people at Bristol about perhaps producing an e-learning resource, resource like a kind of geeky medics for nutritional and lifestyle counselling so uh, medical students in early years can really just see like how it's done practically and um, you know then they can try and practice it on placement but if they're taught it in consultation skills early on, it seems more likely that they'll feel comfortable to do so. So what do you think about that? I think that sounds like a great idea, because like I said with these early placements, everyone really enjoys them, but a lot of people say, I just don't know what to say, I don't know how to approach the patient. Whereas if we could have some virtual learning just before you go in, it's up to you to decide how to do it, and you can 
drive your professional development and I think we are kind of just thrown in at the deep end sometimes like here's a paper just chat to them and for some people it's easy and for other people it's not so I think those kind of resources would really help people and I, yeah, I think that would be amazing I would love that oh we'll sort that out you can help us um yeah, and I think, like you said, when you're in early years, I remember it is really scary talking to a patient on your own for the first time. You don't want them to think that you're scared because you, do, we want, you want to put them at ease. But it's like such a nice question and comforting and on a human level to ask someone, what do you eat? What's your favourite cuisine? Like, what do you cook with your family? Do you cook? Do you have ready-made meals? And it's, you know, it's very human to get to know someone in that way and find out about them and shows that you care, but you're also finding important information about, you know, how they manage themselves and their health. So um, I think there's lots of places it can be integrated in. Um, so tell me about Sheffield. I know that at Bristol, there's a lot of uh, students selected components that you can do if you're interested in nutrition. We've got culinary medicine and we've got integrative medicine um, modules that you can choose to do and things like that. So are there any things in Sheffield that, you know, you've done this research project, but are there any kind of practical uh, modules you can do? Um, I don't think there's practical modules as such. In the early years, it's more like research projects and and like learning about history of medicine, you can pick that. And I think later on in the course, there's a community attachment scheme where you work within the community. Like some people go to the fire department, stuff like that. But I don't think we have practical like resources. The The research SSC is the main place where you can choose um, to follow an interest. But I'm not, I'm not really sure about how they work in the latter part of the course. Sure. And so you've mentioned that you love cooking and you've got your own personal interest in nutrition. Can you tell our listeners about any yummy meals that you make or any self-care tips that you have in general being a busy medical student and stuff that you're doing over COVID to cope? Um, so, so over COVID, I've actually set up a food Instagram, which was something I talked about for years. And I finally had this extra time to do it. So I think my main coping mechanism at uni is always cooking from scratch and cooking fresh things. Like I love cooking curries and just like anything with lots of chopping involved because I think it's really therapeutic. And yeah. um, I also love baking, um, which is a really, I'm a little bit of a stress baker. I do do a bit of late night baking just before an exam or a deadline. But I think it's just, you have to focus on the ingredients and what you're doing. Um, and I think having the extra time around um, COVID gives you that time to just practice things and make sure you're really comfortable with the recipes that you love. So then when you go back to your busy environment, you can continue to um, do those in like faster. Because sometimes when you've had a long day, you can't be bothered to make a curry. But if you've found these easy recipes and you know what you're doing, um, I think it's a lot easier. So, so I've basically only been cooking. <laughs> That's so nice. Tell our listeners what your food Instagram is so they can see what you're up to. Um, it's the e, like the cinnamon bunny. Um, I love it. Creative. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. And I couldn't agree more with you. I think this is a very unique time to practice skills. And you don't need to put the pressure on yourself if you don't fancy it one day. But 
if you do want to take more care and love in making a meal that you would usually find too, you know, time consuming to make, it's a great time to, and like we say, practice makes perfect, you can then whip it up, bulk cook it when you're back into your busy schedule and, um, you know, freeze it, freeze some portions, so really good point. I was actually talking to a GP who I had on the podcast yesterday and she told me that she's got these beautiful postcards from Kew Gardens and she's been writing recipes that she's created during COVID on these postcards so that she can just go back to them when she's back being a busy GP and I just thought that was a really lovely idea and yeah it's the same yours is the more millennial way doing it on Instagram I love it um but yeah really great to hear and thank you so much for your contribution thank you Hi Megan, thanks so much for coming on. So nice to have another Brighton student on because um, we work very closely with your dietitian lead Elaine. So she's the one that actually told me about um, you guys. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about why you decided to get involved with an apple a day. And um, before that actually, tell us why are you interested in nutrition? Um, I think so. I came more at an apple a day from um, a medical education perspective. So I've done quite a lot of work um, with secondary school kids um, through the medical school, lots of teaching stuff like that, which I really enjoy. And then um, this opportunity came up. And I think one reason that it's become so important to me is because um, like the key message behind an apple a day is um, targeting the disparity in health outcomes between those from different um, socioeconomic backgrounds. So um, it's quite well known that um, people from more deprived backgrounds have like worse health outcomes, so higher rates of non-communicable diseases, um, lower life expectancy, lower healthy life expectancy. Um, and so kind of reading around that um, gave me a bit more motivation from kind of a social justice point of view mm. and thinking, well, it might be a good way that we can actually really make a difference by um, kind of targeting um, yeah, kids from this kind of background or this demographic. I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really interesting stance to come at it from, from that socioeconomic um, kind of angle. And it is low-hanging fruit at the end of the day because you can make a difference with food, whereas you can't make a difference with, you know, your living situation and accommodation and family dynamics and all of that. So um, really cool you came at it from there. So tell us about how you started making these online questionnaires for the project and all the evaluation that came with it? Um, so I think it kind of came from um, the programme going quite well. So we've been doing it for a little while and we've been doing lots of cycles, um, kind of tweaking the curriculum and the sessions here and there um, to improve them based on what we'd seen. But I thought we've actually got quite a good programme here. You know, why don't we see if, if it actually works? Like. Um, there became a bit of a need to evaluate the programme. Um, so then, in this way, I thought, well, we can find out which bits work best, um, how can we change the curriculum based on um, like evidence, basically, um, in order to uh, make it have as big an impact as we can. Um, so my project was designing a tool to evaluate the programme and testing it to see if it worked, and then also looking at those findings to see if we had much of a difference. Um, so yeah, and I think we've had lots of help from Elaine, um, who you spoke to before, and also Cathy at the medical school yeah. as well, Cathy Martin. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how it all came about. Sure, and um, your yeah, your colleagues 
uh, Joe and Robin can chip in here at any time, but I'd love to hear about some of the findings that you've mm -hmm. uh, come across during running this programme. Sure, so um, I think the research was uh, involved a few different aspects. So firstly, the design of the questionnaire. Um, so I mapped our learning objectives into questions, measuring the knowledge, attitudes and practices of the students, the pupils that we're teaching, um, basically seeing what they knew about it before and after. Um, and then we also used some feedback from the students um, and then also from the mentors as well. Um, and so the questionnaire, uh, we didn't see um, minor increases in improvements throughout, but it was kind of more of a pilot test. So we only had 19 participants before and after. So um, there's nothing really statistically significant, but this kind of set the groundwork for a larger scale evaluation, which I'd like to do across all of the cycles next year. Um, so basically, design the questionnaire, figure out it works okay and we can do it. And then next year, the plan is to do it over all of the teaching cycles so we can actually do some like statistical analysis on it. Um, one thing that I did notice though throughout all of the questions was that there tend to be a trend in psychological health throughout. So mm. the, um, the pupils were putting more emphasis on the psychological aspects of health compared to the other aspects of health. So for example, one of the questions was what things are important to being healthy? Um, and they're given a list of loads of different and choose as many as they like. Um, so the biggest change in that was um, the talking about feelings. So in all of the options, there's a minor increase. We're talking about feelings, the response rate is kind of doubled to that. And then there's lots of other, there's that similar trend throughout. So there's more emphasis being put on the psychological aspects of health. Um, so questions about the importance of body image, um, how often they think about their own happiness, and their perceptions about um, how mood affects their diet. So that was really interesting, actually, because... We only have one session about psychological health and we do try and feed it into throughout the whole program. Um, but I've also noticed that the topic of psychological health tends to come up quite a lot when we're talking about, oh, so why do you think people might make healthy or unhealthy choices? And then it comes back to, oh, well, you know, maybe they're feeling sad that day or maybe, um, you know, we kind of talk about psychological influences and advertising, things like that. So mm. that for me was one thing that I thought was quite significant. Um, but I'm hoping I've got all the groundwork down there, but mm. kind of depending on how schools and things are going next year, um, it's going to be great to actually get this on hopefully all of the kids in year seven that we teach um, and then get some real kind of numbers that we can just crunch down and be like, right, which of these are the most effective, which are the least effective? Yeah. How can we feed this back into the curriculum program, that kind of thing? Yeah, because, I mean, I wanted to ask you, obviously, and you've kind of answered that, what would you do if you had more time and resources to progress mm -hmm. this project? So next year, it's the hope that you have the... I know that you're increasing the frequency of how often mm -hmm. you're teaching the kids, so tell us about how many cycles you're doing and then your hopes with this research, like you said. Mm-hmm. So, um... This year, I just did the questionnaire before and after one teaching cycle of an apple a day. Um, but we, we've taught four cycles this year, I think, and next year, hopefully, we can do five. Um, so I'm hoping to um, get the questionnaire to all of the cycles of kids um, and then get all of their results. And then we can kind of crunch the numbers on that and then find out which parts are working best, which parts are working not 
so good and then kind of feed that all back in to improve the curriculum and also just get a solid evidence base uh, base behind an apple a day um which will be really great because then that will allow us to say we've got a program and Mm -hmm. it works and then we can use that to kind of help other med schools or other organizations who want to do a similar thing um and i think that's you know that's quite important to us because we put so much work into it into designing the curriculum and seeing what's worked and it'd be great to be able to say you know definitely this does work this is how you can have an impact completely and I think that's just yeah so encouraging to hear that you are going to be producing something that can help so many different organizations and different institutions because it's so crucial that we start targeting um, nutrition from such an early age and when you're talking about having kind of um you know grappling with the literature basis around this i think it's really important to mention childhood obesity and um how crucial your program would be to help um those that struggle with their weight and um actually the uh podcast that comes out tomorrow um is with a leading uh childhood obesity professor from bristol um, Julian Hampton Shield and we discussed all you know the important measures and it just all comes back to education and I think it's so wonderful that you're making the link between medics educating children and the public around nutrition because at the end of the day we are public health advocates and I think it's so important that doctors um, medical students know about nutrition and healthy eating and how to look after themselves because at the end of the day it helps their productivity, reduces burnout and you should really practice what you preach. Um, so I think from that angle be amazing and uh, I know I've said this to you before but I'd love to put you in touch with the Bite Back guys. Um, they were on the podcast that came out last week and I realise I'm saying all these timings and I don't know when your podcast is going to come out, but you know what I mean. Um, So the Bite Back guys are the spin-off organisation of secondary school students um, out of Jamie Oliver's um, company. And they basically are trying to halve childhood obesity by 2030 and they're doing a lot of educational things. So it'd be amazing to link you guys because I'm all about promoting young people, Generation Z, millennials, blah, 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 in this health space. It's, it's This activism is so important. So I really commend you on your work. And also just to say, um, yeah, it'd be great to link up once you've crunched all the numbers and you know, you've put it all together because the Nutritank branches, many of them, we've got around 20 in the country, but many of them, not all of them, um, can opt to take up an initiative that we started called Food for Thought, very similar to an apple a day, and I've mentioned it to Elaine in the past, but we target primary school kids. So um, our medical students from the Nutritank branches go into local primary schools and teach kids around healthy eating and type 2 diabetes prevention and We do it in a really fun, interactive way, like we do like a Pac-Man game where the Pac-Man is like eating the beta cells, you know, of your pancreas and try and get them to spoon out how much sugar there is in a a, uh, fruit juice to really kind of make it as visual and tangible because it's so hard with nutrition, you know, to make it... um, yeah, like like Zoe said earlier, it's not, it's not like drug outcome. It's hard to make it tangible. So um, yeah, really great work, and I'm really interested around the psychological well-being theme that's come through. 
and it comes up time and time again when you're looking at the lifestyle medicine and behavioral change literature and it's that sense of readiness if that person isn't ready and doesn't have that sense of emotional well-being it's so hard to have a conversation with them around lifestyle and nutrition change because it's just not you know a priority for them if their mental health and emotional well-being is like down the toilet so I think it's so great that you are actually going at it from that angle because you'll probably see the more sustainable results because it's tapping into their psyche and really getting that emotional um, well-being kind of um, aspect down so incredible um, so I want to hear from your other brilliant colleagues um, and maybe you've got the answer for this too but do you have any really kind of human perspectives and feedback quotes or just anecdotes that you can tell us that aren't all the numbers that are so important for you know us scientists but just those really incredible experiences you've had with students or teachers uh, around your work I'd say one of the things that, that stuck out um, oh I'm Joe by the way um, hey Joe another mentor on after the day um, yeah, I can't believe how much has already come out in the conversation. So if I think of anything you've talked about already, um, I'll talk about that. Um, but one thing that really standard, stood out straight away was we bring in some fruit for them every session. We bring enough for all the students. And we almost never leave with any. Um, we on the, on the final session, which um, we do as a fun session, lychees sort of blow their minds. Some of them never tried it before. We try and bring in things that they've not tried before. Um, but we see we have students sort of begging to leave with a mango at the end of the session. And it's just such a, it's not where you think you're going to be at the start of the yeah. six weeks. Um, and it's, I think just that alone, sort of moving towards just the action of giving them the fruit as a sort of reward, not as a chore or something they have to do or something that even they know rationally that they should be doing. Just to have it as something that they're like sort of putting their hands up like, I want one, I want one. Um, I think that's a really positive aspect and one of the stories, one of the sort of things that stood out for me. I think that's amazing and it, it's such an interesting thing that you're doing because you're kind of promoting a cultural change around food because I don't know about you guys but from a kid in primary school up until now um, as a fourth year at medical school, lecturers, you know, your clinical teaching fellows to get on your good side to make the sessions engaging, sweeties, cakes, you know, always um that's that's the culture and the same on the nurses station in the hospital um it's always having like you know sweet kind of things to keep you going or as a reward very much um you know have seen with uh friends and families who um weren't allowed sweet things growing up you know they were like demonized and all the other way around they were rewarded with sweet things and you know you get into that really strange psychology um space where you start to develop a weird relationship with um, processed food and you know can lead to binging and all that stuff and it's really amazing that you're actually going about it in such a practical way and teaching them about the variety of fruits and vegetables on offer that they may not have discovered mm, yeah and it's, it's something the psychological aspect of this whole thing the opportunity to be there for them as advocates at this formative age was very apparent and um for you for the uh, food for thought program i've not not come across that before but you might be interested to work with um we worked with a play therapist in cambridge called debbie she's amazing um and she's given us 
she sort of helped us go through our curriculum when we're redesigning it. And she's given us um, a few little games like Chocolate Mindfulness. Not sure if you've heard of that one. Tell us, no. So that's like a guided meditation that we play on just from YouTube or something. There's a few you can find. And we, it's part of our sort of feeds into giving and like balanced messaging. So we bring in like a bag of chocolate and we, we say, we're not here to tell you you can't have chocolate. I think, like you're saying, it's really important to still have that balance. Um, so it's a little exercise where they have a little chocolate and over five minutes or so, there's a little guided meditation that involves sort of having it in different ways, holding it, picking it up, tasting it. And at the end of the five minutes, it's sort of, you've really enjoyed it so much and you've only eaten one chocolate. And it's sort of, a lot of them find it quite strange. A lot of them just eat it straight away, yeah. but it's, they're surprisingly well behaved in terms of that. Wow, no, that, that is so interesting. And um, I don't know if you've come across at, at Brighton, but when I was at the Nutrition and Medicine um, uh, evening that Elaine and Kathy put on in November 2019, uh, Fenia, Greek surname, can't pronounce it, but Ifenia, who <clears throat> is a, um, she gives lectures to the Brighton medical students. Her specialist area is um, mindful eating, and she's done a blog for us on our website, which I can link to you. And I think that is such an important aspect that you're essentially promoting because we live in such a busy modern day culture where people are eating in front of screens, eating on the go, uh, you know, especially busy students, healthcare professionals doing night shifts where it's only vending machines and that kind of thing, always rushing food. And it's, it's cool that you're really showing them how to appreciate it and just slow down. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And we'll definitely check out that, the Mindful Eating book. Yeah, no, for sure. And so tell me about, um, I, any of you can chip in here, what's the feedback been from um, the teachers? You know, has it changed the way um, that the students are behaviourally or just mood-wise? What have they had to say? Um, I think a lot of the um, work that we've been doing with teachers is actually the other way around, to be honest. Like, that's sort of one of the challenges that we've encountered quite a lot is, you know, sending medical students who often don't have that much experience of teaching into a class full of year sevens. Um, so a lot of the time the teachers are giving us advice about how to handle their behaviour. Oh, um, but we've had quite a lot of positive feedback about the discussions we get. So, I mean, we get tons and tons of questions every lesson um, from the pupils just being more and more curious. Um, I think we ended up having about a 20-minute discussion about what's in an egg one time. Um, and I think I was trying to talk about um, keeping hydrated and drinking lots of water. And someone asked me if, um, if you drink too much water, will you drown? And I was trying to explain to like a class of 11 and 12-year-olds about why you won't drown if you don't like if you drink loads and loads of water. I was trying to explain how like the kidneys work, yeah. and I think um, it's really it's really great to see them so engaged and so curious. And it's also like quite a nice challenge for us to kind of be faced with all these questions. And I think as well, just in terms of like our kind of professional development as well, just how to explain things to different age groups and like some things that are quite complex that you don't want to kind of just skip over, um, but also, you know, being able to explain that to an 11-year-old is quite a challenge. I think that's amazing, and this, this, this programme has so much potential for all different areas, for 
both educating the student, educating the teacher, but educating yourselves as well, like you mentioned, with professional development. And honestly, you guys should get it integrated into your paediatric placement because I know you have to, uh, having done peds this year, like you have to really change your course of action with how you chat to the patients that are in front of you. You have to make it fun. You can't be patronising, but you can't, you know, you have to be nice. So it sounds like a really good learning curve to get students on um, to try and explain information to young people. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about some of the misconceptions that arose with what they thought about food and nutrition? So you've got the water thing. Was there anything else like? I actually remember the yeah. the water question. That's really stuck in my mind. Um, and he didn't. The pupil didn't leave convinced at all because <laughs> I remember that. I remember his um, dad had told him that. Oh my god! I guess that just sort of shows the that we really. Yeah. One of the things we want to look into is how we can be having that impact in the families and get families engaged. But yeah, it's a bit of a um, diversion from the conversation. Um, yeah, we had some questions about gravy and yeah eggs definitely come up a lot um and it's, i think it's the interesting thing is we try and sort of not be too specific with our advice because we don't want to say something that might just stick in someone's mind and mm. they come away thinking oh gravy's salty shouldn't have too much salt never have mm. gravy again yeah the, the question when was... you're a child you sort of have those moments and you Black might remember the obscure thing yeah is gravy healthy? And then we were just all there yeah. like, is gravy healthy? <laughs> Don't even know what's in gravy. And we were just kind of like, well, it can be a bit salty, but also like, it's not, it's not really unhealthy. It's just like, how do you explain what's in gravy to a kid? Like, tell them whether it's healthy or not. Like, I think they're just so curious about every aspect of food. And like I was saying with the question about the egg, it was just also what's in an egg? What is the yellow part of the egg? Is it healthy to eat raw eggs? Why do people drink raw, like raw eggs? And it was just going to talk about protein and like why do bodybuilders need protein? It was just yeah, and that's all from I guess they they have those questions from pop media because there's been so much contention around eggs and the nutritional exactly. benefits of them over the years with that cholesterol study and the yolk and blah 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 and then you know bodybuilders that's always in pop culture so um it's just interesting to see where they learn about their food and and um yeah like what they think is a balanced diet did you did were you blown away by any um kind of um like, were you blown away by some of the poor diets that perhaps some of them had? Yeah, I think... Oh, you go for it, Robin. Oh, no, I didn't. Um, sorry. Yeah. Hi, I'm Robin. Thank Hi. you. Um, yeah, no, a lot of... We have a session where we talk about diets, and there's a big myth. I think we've learned what sort of the eat well plate is and um, what a balanced diet means. But um, a lot of the classes that we spoke to sort of saw a diet as something where you restrict what you're eating rather than sort of enhance mm. what you're eating. And yeah, they thought that it would be something quite um, minimal. And we went through different diets from around the world and what different uh, people eat and what different people like to eat and also what they were eating and it's quite telling sort of asking them what they had for lunch and some of them had cheesy chips 
and would have that every day. And then we sort of, we wonder why we um, have generations of people who have poor diets in a way because it's sort of from an early age they're having cheesy chips and when they, when you ask them why it's because their parents gave them two pounds for lunch and two pounds is quite a lot to spend on food if you know what you're like how you're going to work your budget um but they were sort of thinking oh two pounds buys me this out of the school menu um some people didn't eat anything they'd rather save the money and spend it on like a lucasade so that's quite in one of the um first um runnings of the sessions we had this we were sort of setting challenges and we set the challenge for someone to try we started try something healthy that was not it was sort of debated a a little bit amongst the class and we settled on try something you try something new ideally healthy and we had one person engage with that and they said they tried sushi and they tried it before so we we're always trying new things and sort of um trying to get engaged with people but yeah the hearing about the sort of things that people eat um it's it's not so much just what they're eating it's sort of like there's it's the, the whole idea around how much thought you're putting into it and um definitely we want to get people sort of thinking about that decision of what they're going to eat that day i think maybe as well one of the kind of main challenges that um comes up a bit is a lot of the time at that age you kind of see the world as quite black and white or like mm. things are like good or bad and it's really hard to actually get them to get their head around the fact that things might not be healthy or unhealthy that it's all about balance and kind of you know going through the different um, parts of the food plate and thinking well you know we need to have it all of these in proportion and then then you know just asking questions about foods like like gravy or eggs like are they healthy or unhealthy like should I eat them or not and it, it's just kind of it's quite difficult and the whole program is focused kind of around weaving these ideas of balance and like proportions in rather than saying things are healthy or unhealthy because obviously we can't just go in there and tell them what to eat but it's kind of more about empowering them to make their own choices you're completely right and it is so complicated having had um you know professionals in public health on the pod so far there is so much nuance when it comes to food nutrition public health and it's really hard to translate that to young people because as you say i know i was definitely a black or white thinker when i was growing up you it's hard for you to quickly appraise and analyze things because you're you're taught those skills you know as an adult learner in your adult life so um yeah there definitely are challenges there but I guess it's just getting down with the basics um, and really trying to stick with that. And it's like complicated when you get asked like what, you know, gravy, nutritional content, but it's just like you said, stick with the basics um, yeah. and go from there. That's one of the things that has been really um, impactful is that as part of Megan's research, we sort of, well, Megan did, I can't take credit for that, but she sort of worked with Elaine and Kathy, and there was this whole discussion around like defining exactly what our objectives were going to be with each session and overall and sort of sticking to those core messages because it's not a sort of a lot of them sort of new bits about maybe the eat well plate and they've got really good food tech there at the school um it's not really an information problem it's sort of just presenting it and as you say advocating for it and it's something that you sort of need to take in over time 
and maybe in a few different ways and sort of just um, get your head around a few different concepts, sure. like, properly. Totally. It's like the whole spiral learning thing, you know, you have to teach mm. someone the same thing but in a different way to really understand it. So can you tell our listeners a little bit how these sessions actually run, like take us through the whole thing, um, how do you teach it? Yeah, so um, as we said, I don't know if we said before actually, there's six sessions, five sort of discussion, interactive sessions, um, and then one fun session at the end, and they're all organised as part of the school's PSHE curriculum. So we go in in PSHE lessons at specific times. Um, we send a sort of group of volunteers, at the moment medical students, but we're sort of looking to expand that. And we go in and we have some slides, bring in some fruit, and we sort of we've got a few activities and discussion points that we can um, base the session around. And it does sometimes, sort of session to session, um, it it does it can be set up slightly differently. If we have two classes being taught at the same time, two pools of mentors, then they might be the session leaders might be making adjustments to the ability or the sort of anything that they sort of perceive about the class, particular interests. Um, in terms of the actual content, so there's just having a look here. So we've got um, just a little bit about it. We start with an intro and broadly talking about the food groups and what it means to sort of what a balanced diet might look like, and then we sort of elaborate further on that, why you should be healthy, um, lots of discussions around what actually is being healthy. Um, we look at, I think we mentioned food sort of lunches around the world and different concepts like how different, how you can build a healthy meal in lots of different ways. Mm. But one session called Perfect Diet and Healthy Mind. And then later on, we try and give them the sort of practical skills like reading labels, understanding what people mean by calories, um, sort of discussions around what they've experienced of, of diets and things like that. Yeah, no, that sounds, yeah, what a brilliant curriculum. Um, so multifaceted and, yeah, really hitting home on all the important areas. I think food labelling is, yeah, it's such an important thing to learn about early on because you can be so... Um, kind of deceived by labelling and it's not really your fault it's just the way that marketing works and that's what the bite back guys are actually really passionate about and what they spoke to me on um, the podcast just how you know insidious sometimes uh, food marketing can be and you think you're making the healthier choice and you're not and all of this and it's it's a really challenging space to navigate um and so I think early on, if you have the skills to read labels properly, it's really useful because then as an adult, when you're providing food for your family and stuff, you're just better informed um, and you can help teach others. And it's, it's crazy to me that some, you know, that loads of healthcare professionals, doctors, etc., don't really understand food labels because it's not something that is just part of compulsory curriculum, whether it's in school or in tertiary, in, yeah, higher education, tertiary education, like universities. Yeah, I completely agree. So, yeah, really, really crucial, I think, that that's in there. Um, so, tell me how you recruited your mentors. Was there a lot of, um, was there a lot of excitement about this amongst your medical student colleagues? How did it all work? 
And who started? Who started it in the first place in Apple Day? Yeah, so if, um, we were, we didn't sort of found it. Um, if we wanted a quick look at the history, so it was it was sort of a group of medical students at BSMS, Amaran, Katie, Kez, and James, who worked very hard to sort of lay the foundations and work with Elaine, Kathy, Beth at the uni, Matt at the school. Everything sort of came together in their final term of year four, and at that point they're running the pilot run and sort of getting word out about it and me meg robin like a few others we were sort of we um applied and just sort of got involved in that way um but it came it came around at the point where they were going into fifth year with regional placements so they kind of needed um, people to step up both as mentors and leaders straight yeah. away so the next um year was a little bit we're sort of just working things out getting our finding our feet um, and we recruited over this summer, not this summer, sorry, at the end of the first year, sort of, a, we had a new wave of people and it was, there was a lot of excitement around that, sort of running social media and things like that. And we've got the sort of awesome team that we have today. That's amazing. Do you know Ibs, um, Ibrahim, who's <clears throat> the Nutritank, uh, the Brighton Nutritank League? Yeah, no, it'd be great if you guys could collaborate with the Nutritank branch and um, get students helping you guys there and promoting it on the social media platforms as well because it's just such a yeah clear collaboration and really cool. Mm, yeah, all messages. Fab. <laughs> and um, so tell me a little, I want to hear a little bit more about each of you. So I know you are doing a management uh, intercalation at the moment at Imperial. I yeah I integrated there actually last year. Um, oh right. I was doing the human. Um, what am I saying? I was doing the humanities, philosophy, and law, the HPL course. Oh yes. Yeah, so it's quite it's quite yeah. a new one, and it gets a lot of kind of weird criticism from all the very sciencey people at Imperial because you know. It, yeah. I'm uh, sure you know that. <laughs> <laughs> but it, I mean, it's it seems like a. I think it's a little bit unfairly judged because it sort of lines up with people's with a lot of people's interests. Yeah. But it is actually a taxing course. And, yeah, uh, it was you know. it was so taxing. Like the law side, I honestly I didn't answer any of the law questions in my exam because I just mm. yeah, never really got it. But hey, yeah. So that so tell us about um, tell our listeners about why you decided you wanted to um, look further into management and why you think it's going to help you as a future doctor. Yeah, so it, it ties in with Apple a day, actually. Um, the sort of general opportunity around an Apple day when I was first applying, it seems obvious that there was firstly the impact and the opportunity to go into classrooms to have an impact and work with people directly in the community, but also an opportunity to sort of take on and help run the next phase of the programme and sort of all of those possibilities that um, come with sort of applying our research and talking to other medical schools. So the role I took over from Amaran, one of the founders, was strategy. Mm. And for a while, I didn't really know what that meant. Um, it was sort of the recruitment, the direction, ensuring sustainability. That didn't really mean anything for me for a while, even though I was sort of vaguely looking into it and working on it. Um, but it made me want to understand the sort of organizational context for things a little bit more and so I applied to the management course at Imperial Business School and 
well, what started out as a year in London. Um, yeah. It's been it's been really interesting, and it's given me lots of sort of lots of ideas that I'm annoying everyone on the team with. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's so useful, more than annoying, to have someone who because you. I feel like. You know, in um, America, for instance, there's a much greater emphasis around healthcare entrepreneurship and it's kind of already part of mainstream curriculum. Whereas in the UK, you know, you've got the NHS um, clinical entrepreneurship program. But other than that, which not, you know, even many people know about, there's not a huge emphasis on being leaders and being strategists within medicine. So I think it's really important that there are, not everyone needs to be it because, you know, there's, there's not, you know, there only needs to be a select few people who are doing it as the same with everything. But it's, yeah, it's really amazing that it's an option for medics to do. Yeah, I think that there, there are sort of good reasons for it, but medicine can be quite inward looking. Mm. Um, so I was very interested to learn about the things that sort of lifting the lid a bit and learning about the NHS, how things work. Um, and the course there, was, it was mismanagement, so I wasn't really sure if that was what I wanted to look into, but it, was, it turned out to be a really good fit because it meant a really wide variety of things, working a lot in teams and sort of getting a broad um, sense of business as opposed to a very specific one. Mm. I guess it only just enhances your problem-solving skills because you're going at it from another discipline. So I'd like to hope so. Let's hope so. <laughs> Let's hope so. We'll see. And yeah. Robin, I want to hear from you. So really impressive. You're doing a master's during your integration year in public health at Southampton. So um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about why you wanted to do it and um, what you're learning and how it's going to benefit you as a future doctor and tell us all. Yeah, so I think it relates really back to um, what we've been talking about. Um, I've been, I've always been interested in paediatrics um, and have done lots of sort of coaching with children through different sports and um, through the paediatric society at the SMS. I've enjoyed going into schools and sort of engaging kids into healthy lifestyles in different ways as well as with an apple a day. Um, so I like sort of preventative medicine and mm-hmm. um, making sort of health a lifestyle rather than a rather than reactive um, later on in life. So public health is so broad, which is really exciting, um, but a bit intimidating. And it's it's nice to think a bit more about sort of all of the different differentials um, for health and why why people choose to eat things that they do or have do exercise that they do or just even not choices, even more like geographical determinants of health. Mm. Um, and I, you said earlier about us sort of as people in the healthcare profession, we need to be advocates um, of public health. Um, So I wanted to find out a bit more about that. And um, yeah, like as Joe said about sort of management as well, we cover more um, systems-based thinking about 
how the health system works as well as interacts with the education system and all different stakeholders so it's really interesting it must be a very interesting time as well to be in a global pandemic and be doing a public health degree <laughs> yeah so i'm assuming it finishes in september or around then so what are you doing your research project on Yes, well, I don't actually know yet. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I don't. Well, I don't know what my research project is for this year. But um, I think I mentioned to you about what I'm hoping to do next year um, when I'm back at the SMS. Um, we get to do our research projects in fourth year, um, and I'm hoping to follow on from some of Megan's research and sort of. So she's done a more more evaluation um, and monitoring side of things. I want to um, add to the evidence base and do some qualitative research, which is I've I've had um, discussions with Cassie about um, qualitative research. It's not always um, given the same value as quantitative research in the scientific evidence base because you can't put a number on it you can't put a significant value on it um and i was really inspired by the conversations i was having with the children in the apple a day sessions about more of the reasons why they choose certain foods or what they think about certain foods and all the imagination Mm. yeah and it's interesting you say that i mean thematic analysis i think is so important and um, I know what you mean in the kind of like science world quantitative is favoured and that's kind of like why I did my intercalation in humanities last year like my entire dissertation was analysing um, perceptions and qualitative things and views so it's a really nice difference and I do think they can really hold equal weights because like we see with um, you know we're trying to make everything as patient-centred as possible and there's all this like co-participatory research between clinicians and um, patients and it just really helps improve the overall health goal because you know you're getting their direct perspective on board so yeah it'd be really interesting to do that with an apple a day so how many are you in the network of an apple a day so it started off with the four founders amran james kazaya and katie and then from then they recruited eight of us to take over the next year mm. and i think this year joe megan correct me if i'm wrong but i think it's 16 this year wow guys well done yeah. that's incredible lots of manpower there no you're going to do great things um and so i just wanted to wrap up and find out a little bit about how you guys take care of yourself so um you're very interested in healthy eating. You're doing this entire uh, brilliant program around healthy eating. So what do you guys do? Um, do you cook yummy meals? What do you cook? What do you get up to? Megan, you go first. Okay. Um, so I actually follow a vegan diet for kind of like environmental reasons. Um, I love animals. So I find that quite um, a good way to like be creative in my cooking. So... A lot of the time, um, people think that you can't really make much out of, like, just plants. Um, but actually, I think it's been really good, kind of, I think I went vegan, like, 
think at the start of my second year, so it's been about three and a half years now. Um, and I think it's just great to um, be able to experiment with different things and kind of pick up little tips and tricks. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I spend quite a lot of time um, cooking meals, but I think as well it's important to remember that sometimes you, well, it's okay not to necessarily have like a huge, big, healthy meal. Like, it's okay if you want to get a takeaway or it's okay cool. if you want to do something quick um, because, you know, you can't, I don't know, I think in healthy eating sometimes there's a bit, or like in nutrition there's sometimes a bit of a um, pressure that like everything you need to eat needs to be healthy but I think in terms of especially at the moment um, with there being quite a big focus on well-being like it's so important to just take each day as it comes and um, you know if you want to spend the whole day cooking a great big meal that's great but if you kind of can't really be bothered and you just want to have sausages and beans or something like great. (laughs) Completely fine and I agree it's all about balance and not putting too much pressure on yourself for sure. And Joe, what about you? Yeah, I'm not a particularly distinguished chef myself or, or a baker or anything. I might have to check out Zoe's um, Instagram. Yeah. yeah for all the food tips. But yeah, I think it's important to have a, a few sort of core meals that are kind of flexible, that you like, that have a variety of different foods, um, like stir fries and stuff like that. That you, I mean, what, whatever you want to eat. Um, and sort of giving that a little bit of thought and um, I, I sometimes get those sort of big trays of Mediterranean veg and sort of just put them in the oven because they're nice and easy. Um, yeah, at the moment, if I'm completely honest, I'm living at home, so my mum's cooking and sort of that's working really well. Fair That'll enough. Be top tip. Lucky you. Um, yeah. And you, Robin? <laughs> Joe's lying. I've lived with him for three years. He's a great cook. <laughs> Modest. Um, but sure balance, I think. Um, I, I like cooking from scratch as well. It just builds on what Zoe was saying earlier. Um, and I think it can be really cheap and really interesting. And I really like garlic, so it would put like double the amount of garlic into food and then it tastes way better (laughs) and also you're not socializing at the moment during covid so why not exactly (laughs) who's going to be upset about it (laughs) um and so last question you've mentioned a lot of cooking do you ever talk about cooking tips with uh your students yeah so one of the first um sessions that we did is like make up your own meal and there's different versions of that where we sort of I, I don't know if you remember ready steady cook where they yeah. have all different ingredients yeah. love it um that, I, I think I can remember that one I don't know if Jim and Megan have any other sessions we can remember yeah well I think that's a really important sort of part of it's an important outcome for us to have at the end is that pupils can at least verbalise some of the concepts around designing a meal and some of the other things like the costs that might be involved, where you might get the ingredients from and sort of putting together different food groups, what might make sense. We get some very interesting suggestions. Um, But yeah, that's an important part of what we want to do at the end is to have them able to sort of conceive of making the meals themselves. And I think it would be, we'd love to get back to actually practically going into the into those kitchen sessions again, which is something they've run in the pilot session. We haven't managed to arrange since. Um, Yeah, we'd love to revisit that. 
I think that's brilliant and such a good idea and um, I actually urge you to look at, I'll send you a link afterwards, but look at the Instagram page Edible Explorers. Um, they're up in Burnley and a school teacher has essentially made this initiative um, around teaching kids knife skills and cooking skills and healthy eating. Um, so she's doing that and she's trying to get other teachers on board across the country to do it. And she came and spoke at this brilliant conference at the Royal Society of Medicine on um, nutrition and health uh, run by the College of Medicine earlier in autumn. And she brought all the school kids all the way in a coach from Burnley and they all got on stage and did this amazing like song around um, vegetables and fruits and like you meant, some of them had never heard of a courgette, some of them had never heard of an aubergine, like it was so surprising and like you mentioned Megan, they, they were part of a lower socioeconomic um, demographic and so it's really about increasing accessibility and teaching those cooking skills so early on like you know if, if kids are monitored of course they can use knives if it's safe and you know they're those really um yeah they're, they're those knives that are much uh, blunter and less sharp for kids and it's so important i guess that they learn this early on um and it would just help them with the understanding around what they're putting in their system so yeah check check out check them out for sure yeah well thank you guys so much you've been amazing um thank you for yeah dedicating your time to this very long conversation it's honestly so worthwhile to connect everyone together and i think we can do really great work all together so thank you so much for coming on definitely thanks very much for having us and where can um they hear about you uh if they want to look further into an app of the day we have an instagram page hang on let me just find the name of it um it is i think it's a a d three a's and a d underscore brighton yeah three a's and d underscore brighton and apple a day cool i'll put it in the show so hey jess such a pleasure to have you on the podcast i've loved working with you the last couple of months it's so exciting the research we're doing in medical education together so if you could just start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and why you got interested in doing nutrition in medical education research all over to you um yeah so firstly i'm really delighted to be here today to talk to you about things that we're both really passionate about nutrition and medical education so when i studied the intercalated bachelor of science in primary healthcare i spent a year in general practice and i was able to shadow every member of the primary healthcare team um, spending most of my time with the GPs and advanced nurse practitioners. Um, in the consultations that I sat in, um, some clinicians raised the topic of diet and nutrition with their patients. Um, in particular, I remember one GP um, took a history, a dietary history from a patient um, who had recently been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. And in doing that, the GP allowed the patient to recognise aspects of their diet that could be improved. Then the GP provide the, provided the patient with simple dietary advice and encouraged the patient to record their food intake and activity level on the phone app. And through lifestyle modifications alone, that patient managed to lower their blood glucose 
enough to reverse their diabetes and it was all because this CP had engaged them in changing their attitude towards food so cases like that really highlighted to me that so many of patients health problems are not um, going to be resolved by giving them a prescription that they really need to be engaged and empowered um, in improving their health and observing these consultations also made me realize that there was and this was two to three years ago there was a lack of dietary counseling teaching at my medical school because throughout pre-clinical and clinical undergraduate medical training students are taught about lifestyle modifications um, and they're told that they are the first line intervention for prevention and management of diseases and conditions but this teaching often lacks evidence base and there is no to little like teaching on how to apply the principles of nutrition to clinical practice so when i dug a little bit deeper into the literature i discovered there was a severe lack of nutrition and dietary counseling teaching in most medical schools in the uk and then i came across culinary medicine um and this. Wow, Jess, that is honestly such a remarkable story, and it must have just been such an eye-opening experience for you to still be in medical education and witnessing such a amazing intervention that was made by the GP, and then realizing that many interventions like this could be made yet we're not being taught enough about it and as you know we've had many discussions about this we're both so passionate about making this change so that it can be more of a mainstream thing that's not that one-off remarkable gp doing something like that so you mentioned culinary medicine um please do tell our listeners what is culinary medicine culinary medicine in simple terms, teachers, doctors, and medical students about nutrition and how to apply those principles and knowledge to clinical practice. So it is already very well established um, in America, and it's believed to be an important part of the undergraduate medical curriculum in there. Um, however, in the UK, there are at the moment only two medical schools that teach culinary medicine, and that's Bristol and UCL Medical School. Our medical schools, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, tell me what it was like when you were able to actually be a participant on the culinary medicine course at UCL. Tell us about the process of how UCL got it on board and what it was like being a student participant on the course. Sorry, I need to pause for a So, just tell us a little bit about the process of culinary medicine coming to UCL. Yeah, so luckily for us, um, we have a faculty member, Dr. Sophie Park, who is really passionate about um, culinary medicine and bringing it into the medical curriculum. And she is a GP um, who is part of the primary care team at UCL. And that team worked with Culinary Medicine UK, um, who is, which is directed by Dr. Rupi Aldula and Dr. Abhinav Bansali. And together they created 
a curriculum which was adapted from the curriculum at Tulane Medical School in the US and they've made it so that it fits in to the clinical curriculum at TCL. Wow, so that's incredible. It really was about, find, it was consulting your medical school to find out what's appropriate for them and then adapting the course and the curriculum to kind of fit in with UCL's curriculum structure. Uh, that sounds so epic. So um, I know I did a course in it at Bristol as a student selected module, but it was a four week course as a choice uh, a student selected uh, module choice so quite different because I was just me and seven other really passionate students doing it for four weeks whereas with you guys at UCL it was for a whole cohort of medical students as part of your primary care so really integrated into the mainstream curricula so can you just tell us a little bit about what you actually did as part of your primary care block when it came to culinary medicine yeah, so like you said, culinary medicine training at UCL is currently available for fifth-year undergraduate students during their primary care module. And the teaching is delivered by GPs, a dietitian, and a chef. And the course is amazing. It incorporates multiple teaching strategies. For example, the day before we have our culinary medicine day, um, we're asked to complete an interactive online module and that um, incorporates really important topics like public health nutrition, the evidence base for diets, how to take a dietary history. Um, there's multimedia, um, including a clip of a consultation between a GP and an actor. And the day itself is hands-on culinary skills training based day um, and there's also a consultation skills workshop that's incorporated between our cooking um, it's based at an amazing facility um, it's a teaching kitchen at Westminster Kings Bay Culinary School and I I just found the day so interesting entertaining and and I think it's amazing that we were able to do um the practical side of things as well as theory and then bring that all together um for instance culinary culinary skills that's an, an amazing engaging and memorable way of learning about food preparation um and then with the case-based discussions that we had students are encouraged to draw upon their experiences of encounters with patients in general practice and then share how they would approach um, patient-based problems related to diet and nutrition. Wow, it just sounds so worthwhile. And yeah, whilst I did the course um, myself, I um, really wanted the whole kind of medical school and my year group to really understand and be able to value the skills that I had learned because like you, we were learning it in consultation skills, learning from the amazing dietitians we had teach us, like uh, Elaine McKinnich, who um, is also one of the directors of culinary medicine. You know, we were learning how to actually engage patients in their readiness 
towards lifestyle modification and find out ways to make it meaningful to them with the changes and yeah it was only for about 10 people in my year who were really interested but I think you know like you've mentioned it's so worthwhile to make it part of primary care or however the medical school wants to do it just so that education is actually you know disseminated to the masses and not just those interested because it has you know as you know Jess nutrition and dietary interventions have more than a primary care application they have an application in pre-op before patients undergo big surgeries and going under anesthetics it's it's so crucial that every specialty is taught around nutrition so um i want to hear more about your study and your research so if you could just tell our listeners a bit about the findings and why you chose to do a quantitative study over a qualitative and just give us a bit of the basis of it all. Yeah, so I did a cross-sectional online questionnaire study and um, the aim of my study was to determine students' learning preferences and expectations for culinary medicine learning and the ultimate goal was to be able to inform the development of the culinary medicine course. So the reason why I chose to do an online questionnaire study, um, so quantitative data, is to gather as many opinions and experiences as possible. Um, there were also elements of the survey which enabled students to freely express themselves and that they could write about their experiences and that that formed a part of my qualitative analysis. Um, so in terms of a summary of the findings, um, we asked students what they understood by the term culinary medicine. Like I've said previously, it's a relatively new term in the UK and some students felt that culinary medicine equates to nutrition education whilst others associated it with learning consultation skills such as motivational interviewing and they believe that learning those skills would improve their abilities to address patients dietary needs in the future and most students recognize that culinary medicine has an evidence base to it what was really interesting is that Although students felt that learning culinary medicine is important for their future clinical practice, most felt unable to take a dietary history. So that really showed an, a gap in the curriculum and an area that we could really focus on and develop student skills in. And we asked students what they wanted in a curriculum on a culinary medicine course, and they suggested topics like weight management and portion control, as well as types of diet. And students were also enthusiastic about the practical side of the culinary medicine course and having a case-based approach towards patients because in primary care and in, in all of medicine, really, that's the kind of approach that clinicians should have towards their patients. Absolutely. And so where would you like to see your research going and 
before we actually go there, how how were you supported by the rest of your faculty um, with this research? Did you have good feedback? Um, what was it like? I'm trying to assess if um, I just want to like assess if you know is Sophie the only one backing this or is the whole of the UCL kind of engaged were you welcomed to do this kind of research by your medical school kind of thing um to be honest I haven't received any feedback from like the faculty um because all of my all of the results from my study like goes through Sophie because Sophie is like coordinating all of that makes sense. So it doesn't really need to be shared with anybody else. Okay, sure. Let me scrap that. Let me scrap that. Okay. So Jess, I'm really interested in finding out ways in which passionate people like you and I about nutrition and medical education can kind of understand ways of conversing those medical students and clinicians who aren't engaged in it and don't see its value. So I'm curious to hear about the feedback you got about um, your research project um, from your medical student colleagues and whether some were really interested to find out more and some just didn't see its value and how you kind of handled that. Yeah, I definitely received mixed responses to my study. Um, some students were extremely enthusiastic and shared my the same passion that um, we have um, for this kind of research. Um, I had some students reach out to me by email, via social media, come and talk to me face to face, and say that they are really for that they were really for this idea of introducing culinary medicine teaching. Um, some students even offered to help me in, in some way with the development of this project. Um, and then other students, and this was evident also um, in the results that um, I got, um, were very confused by the concept. Um, they felt that there may not be a need to learn this um, in undergraduate medical training. And this is because their students felt that it was really hard to de define what culinary medicine is and the role of the clinician, the doctor, versus the role of a dietitian versus the role of a nutritionist. So um, students, these students don't perhaps don't quite understand how nutrition is relevant to clinical practice in the in the way that um, a doctor has the role to recognize ill health in a patient that may be as a result of poor nutrition. Sure and I think that is actually a really profound point because it is confusing in the nutrition world itself between you know, what do nutritionists do? What do dietitians do? And how can they work together? And 
also you know the issue with the nutritionist title not being regulated and dietitians you know being regulated with the bda of course there are nutritionists that are regulated with the afn but there is that kind of confusion and likewise when you then mix the nutrition world with the medical world there's even more confusion with trying to understand how it is that um, they can work cohesively together because of course at Nutritank what we're saying with wanting to promote nutrition education within uh, medical training we don't want medical students and future doctors to uh, become dietitians by no means it's a three-year very intensive degree we just want them to have a foundation level basis that's evidence-based that they are comfortable in discussing diet and lifestyle with their patient and knowing where to refer on and signpost appropriately because data from the study that myself and my team and other members worked on um, that was published in BMJ Prevention and Nutrition, uh, Time for Nutrition Education um, was the name of the paper, we found that students and doctors alike didn't really know how to appropriately refer on to a dietitian either. So I think that, you know, there's a lot more education that's needed to make people understand the role of the dietitian and how doctors, it's their response, nutrition is everyone's responsibility, but of course they're not going to have time or they won't be trained in the right expertise to go into it in thorough detail, but they need to be able to offer advice around diet and lifestyle because that is the first line management of every chronic condition according to um, NICE. And right now that's just not being done. So um, it's interesting that that came through with you too, because we've had that as well. And it's, it, yeah, it's just exactly what I said. We just need to really flesh out the education there and explain from the onset to students when this type of teaching is delivered, what does the dietitian do? Why is it a doctor's responsibility too? And it's because for instance, GPs are the gatekeepers that will be maybe the only kind of medical interaction that a patient will have in a year. Absolutely. i just like to add to that. Um, I don't think that students realise that the General Medical Council um, now expects UK medical school graduates to be competent in recognising ill health as a result of poor nutrition and to be able to apply that knowledge and the principles to clinical practice. And... Students, what's amazing is that students who have received um, culinary medicine training are found to have a more positive attitude towards and better knowledge of diet and nutrition and are more competent and confident in dietary counselling. So that just really reinforces the need for this training and why, and it really demonstrates that culinary medicine being incorporated into the clinical curriculum is appropriate. Absolutely, I, I completely agree with that. And so Jess, where would you like to see your research going in the future? And just research, you know, in nutrition, in medical education in general going? So other UK universities have shown interest in introducing culinary medicine into their curricula. I would love to see more clinically relevant nutrition and dietary counselling teaching in all UK medical schools and other universities can look at UCL as an example of how to introduce and integrate culinary medicine into the clinical curriculum 
it's been very well received by students um, and I think it's only a matter of time before it really does um, sort of take over all the, all the medical schools in the UK. Absolutely. And we're working hard with the culinary medicine team in our nutrition implementation coalition alongside NEDPRO and Erin to ensure exactly this, that more medical schools come to culinary medicine, um, which offers free consulting to medical schools who even show an interest in putting nutrition in their curriculum and finding out how it can be best suited to their style of curriculum. And, you know, we're trying to do this through our Nutritank branches to work cohesively with the culinary medicine team. And um, so that Nutritank branches have a student committee member who is the nutrition education champion and finds and seeks out a faculty champion within their medical school, like Sophie, like Sophie Parker UCL, like Trevor Thompson at Bristol, who got culinary medicine in as a student selected module, the one that myself and my co-founder Ian did. And then by having this relationship with the student uh, nutrition education champion and their faculty champion, they can really start making the case to the entire faculty of how culinary medicine will be really beneficial to be integrated into the course. And like you say, there's fantastic case studies now with Bristol and UCL spearheading this. Jess, it was an absolute pleasure talking with you today and thank you so much for taking the time. It's a shame we can't reveal the exciting project that we're working on just yet, but in due course we shall do. But um, listeners, get ready for a very exciting nutrition education research project. Um, so Jess, if people want to get in touch with you and keep up with your work and find out about your research, how can they get in touch with you? Um, I'm really happy for people to um, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, my name on there is just Jessica Jessie. Um, or you can email me jessica.xie at doctors. Dot net. Um, I also have a baby Instagram, um, plates underscore, um, plates for the sunshine with underscores in between it, um, that people can follow me on. Amazing. Love a foodie Instagram account. Anyways, thank you so much, Jess. Thank you. Wow. Another wonderful guest. Stay tuned for new episodes on Nutritank's Nourish Your Mind podcast. Nutritank is an award-winning, innovative information hub for food, nutrition and lifestyle medicine, with a current mission to improve nutrition and lifestyle medicine education within medical training nationwide. Nutritank aims to empower healthcare professionals and members of the public to improve their health and well-being through diet and lifestyle modifications. Visit Nutritank.com for our membership packages, follow us on social media and join our community. Bye for now. Please note that this podcast aims to educate and not to replace healthcare professionals' advice, so please continue to seek help from your nutritionists, your dietitians and your doctors. Thank you.